This is The Global Gambit. Life inherently consists of gambits. Be it individuals or countries, the ability to outmaneuver, navigate, strategize, or feint to get ahead is crucial and inevitable against the complexities, unpredictabilities, risks, and competition associated with life around the world. In the Global Gambit podcast, we focus on the big picture of geopolitics, foreign policy, and current affairs, seeking to make sense of the news, go beyond what's presented to us, and question and critically analyze these matters. Each episode, your host, Pyotr Kurzin, who being English and Russian is a product of geopolitical events himself, brings you interviews and panels with top-tier academics, journalists, and policymakers. Within each discussion, there is a live interactive audience who engages in a question-and-answer session with the guest in the podcast's second half. This episode is brought to you via the Ukraine sitrep room on Clubhouse, which has been continuously running since the 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine, surpassing 1 million unique listeners on April 20th of 2022. Want to learn how to participate? Stay tuned to the end of the podcast. And do not forget to engage with us on social media. And if you appreciate the content, to support us at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit. Thank you very much for listening and on to the show. This is The Global Gambit. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Global Gambit uh, with your host, Piotr, speaking. This time around, I, well, I have to be honest, I am quite flabbergasted uh, with the guest that is joining me for this episode. It is Sir Mark Andrew Lowcock. Uh, he is a, well, I don't think he needs much of an introduction, but he he was the former United Nations Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator, which is essentially the head of the uh, United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, or OCHA, as it's well known. Being in, uh, at the head of this position for just between 2017 and 2021, uh, so Mark has done a notable amount of work in, in the areas of humanitarian relief, uh, trying to help issues such as the Yemen war that continues, um, albeit it has a ceasefire at the moment and hopefully will hold, but also uh, in the uh, Ethiopian Tigrayan conflict, uh, as well as uh, across many parts of the globe. The mark is someone that I actually covered a fair amount of my work whilst working with Crisis Group in the latter half of 2020 and 21, uh, and often was listening intently to what he had to say during the uh, Security Council sessions that he would be briefing. Uh, so Mark has released a book um, since his uh, since his time as the UNSGC called Relief Chief, a manifesto for saving lives in dire times. And given we are facing arguably the single worst conflict to plague the uh, European theatre for decades, arguably since the Second World War, uh, and has um, pushed the international system, the international community into one of the worst food crises that we have seen, now is no better time to be talking about this than now. But even as we record this in the last couple of hours, the Russians and the Ukrainians have secured, with the help of the United Nations, it must be said, a landmark deal to remove the obstructions and barriers towards grain exports from the port city of Odessa in southwest Ukraine. These topics and more are what we're going to be covering this uh, in this episode. And uh, Mark, it's a, it's a real pleasure. Thank you so much for joining the Global Gambit. It's a pleasure for me. Uh, I was absolutely I fell off my chair when you uh, when you uh, when your your, your colleague uh, reached out to me and I was like oh my god yes this is oh so I know it's taken <laughs> a bit of time but I'm, I'm stuffed to be here so 
just I think really the best place to start for my listeners, both on Clubhouse where we're recording this, but also on the on the podcast, is what what's your take of this deal that's just been signed? I know it's very early days and you haven't had a chance maybe to read some of the intricate details, but what what's your take? Is it it's obviously a good step, but what should we take from it? What should our immediate reactions be? And and, and given it is specifically about grain, should we not be too cheerful yet? We should be a little bit tentative in how we we approach this. Well, this deal is a big deal. What we've been facing with is the world's biggest food crisis for many decades. And as the Secretary General of the UN, my old boss, Antonio Guterres, has said, we brought with it the threat of multiple famines around the world in which millions of people potentially could have been literally starved to death. And that's a staggering thing to have to talk about, because although famines were common throughout most of human history, they'd almost disappeared. It's only been one so far this century, the one that took uh, the lives of quarter of a million Somalis in 2011. And as somebody who's been doing this kind of work for 40 years now, the whole of my adult life, I thought it was just an amazing thing that we could extinguish from the human experience such a grotesque event as a famine. So when following Putin's invasion of Ukraine, it became a serious prospect that this could, uh, this scourge could be back. That was a something really too horrible to contemplate. And the fact that now um, there is an agreement that 20 million tonnes of food, enough for 400 million people, should be released from Ukraine's Black Sea port silos, gives us a chance to stave off that horror. Whether it's the end of the matter depends not on the pens put to the paper, but on whether the deal is stuck to. It is a very good thing that this story is running at the top of every news outlet's website or broadcast service right now, because that increases the chance of um, implementation. And this is not the implementation of this deal is not the only thing that needs to happen. Other things need to happen too, but it's a big deal. It is um, reason for hope. um, And now it needs to happen. I appreciate that. Do you think, though, that it's could it be a launching pad potentially for more agreements to be established, uh, such as with a a potential temporary ceasefire? Is this something we've seen in other uh, situations in your experience where once you get a sort of agreement on a humanitarian perspective or matter that that can then begin to sort of build on the political and security elements such as a ceasefire and then an eventual peace deal? Or is that too? Uh, I, I think that the re I think the reason why Putin has acceded to this deal, or at least signing the deal, we'll see if he implements it. The reason he's done that is because of the pressure put on him by countries in Africa, the Middle East, Asia, who were horrified at the concept of 20 million tons of food going to waste, but also frightened of the consequences that might have for their own populations. And so through back channels and in some cases publicly have made it clear to Putin they really want this grain to be released. The Turks have played a very important role as well. The alliance that the the, the relationship that Putin has with Erdogan is an important relationship. They don't always agree on everything, but they found a way to rub along with each other and listen to each other when there's something that really matters to them. And this this deal really mattered to the Turks. But I would not read across from this to draw any conclusions at all about Putin's military intentions in Ukraine. I think that there's been plenty of other signals in recent days from the Russians that they they have not had enough of the bloodshed in Ukraine and they 
have ambitions to extend the control they have over land they've grabbed and potentially grab more land too. So no, I wouldn't make that linkage. Interesting. No, I, I appreciate that. It, it's just something, given um, your experience with Syria, obviously, and the humanitarian corridors that were established, I think originally three, and now there's only one um, in and around the northwest with Idlib, uh, which remains the only area that the uh, rebels are holding out against the uh, the Assad regime. I just was curious for your take on that. But just to just to bring it a little bit more now, so for our listeners, you know, this is a, the, the episode sharing uh, the book that Mark recently released. Uh, and it's a lovely book. I really do recommend everybody to check it out because I like the personable approach that you you write it with, and sort of at the very beginning, the fact that you're standing, sort of, I think it was in the wa- near the water cooler, and then you get the telephone <laughs> call. Um, yeah. And no, I, I thought that was just. I like the uh, inclusion of sort of what was going through your mind. It's not just a third party. It's really in the sort of like you know we're, we're picturing you there and you're getting the phone call, uh, and it was a. Uh, I'm just curious, what was that like when you first started working in such a high level capacity in the UN, having to shift to New York? And just could you take us through a little bit of the role itself and, and how you've been grappling with that whilst being at a time we've seen some of the worst food crises in, in recent memory? So I've done this kind of work for nearly 40 years now. And my job before Antonio Guterres rang me up and asked me as I was standing, as you say, in the atrium of the World Bank offices, Antonio asked me if I would come and be the head of humanitarian affairs for him while he was the secretary general. My job before that was as the permanent secretary of the UK Department for International Development. And throughout my whole career, I've worked on these humanitarian issues. My first job, in fact, was dealing with the response to the famine in Ethiopia, which took the lives of a million people in the mid-1980s. So the challenge for me was not so much dealing with the crises and the escalation of crises. I'd been watching that over the previous several years from the Department for International Development, where we were trying to do our bit to help people and save lives. The bigger chance for me was moving to a different organisation. And um, the UN, of course, is an organisation of its member countries. And Mm -hmm. the governments of the member countries are the people who have the power. If you're the secretary general, you are more secretary than general. And certainly if you're an undersecretary general like me, you are under the secretary rather than the general, if you see what I mean. So you spend a lot of your time encouraging, cajoling, pleading, proposing, but you don't have a lot of hard power. And so the challenge we found ourselves with when I came into the job was after several decades in which things have been getting better for most people around the planet, people eating more, living longer, seeing fewer of their children die in infancy, being able to send their children to school. That progress, which was a huge, amazing story, really from 1960 to about 2010, started to slow down. And then from about five years ago, started to go into reverse. So we've seen a huge escalation in these humanitarian problems the aid agencies overwhelmed in dealing with them. And and the reason I wrote the book really was to try to set out what we needed to do to deal better with this new situation. Aid agencies save millions of people's lives every year, but they are overwhelmed. And the book basically sets out, as you say, a manifesto for how we can do better. It starts with having to address the causes of these problems. We need to deal better with 
with preventing and resolving conflict and deal better with the impact of climate change on poor countries and recognise they've had a huge hit from COVID. But then we also need to reform the humanitarian system. We need we need a system which acts much earlier in advance of predictable problems, where the focus is much more in helping people who we know always will suffer the most, especially women and girls. And then we need to change the system so that the big decisions are made not mostly by conversations between aid agencies and the people who give them money, which is what happens now. More of the big decisions need to be made in response to the question posed to the victims of these tragedies. What help do you need? And let's check whether you're getting that help. So that's what the book tries to do. And it reflects the experience I had traveling around the world, seeing these crises, listening to people's stories, more than 50 countries, some of them multiple times um, over that four year period. I was the lucky 13th holder of this uh, job. Oh, Oh, okay. As long as you didn't get the call on a Friday, right? Right. Um, No, I didn't actually. It wasn't a Friday. It was, uh, I think it was a Saturday, actually. Um, uh, (laughs) Which is also fine. And my predecessors on average had done the job for two years each. And they each, because I spoke to almost all of them, the only person I couldn't spoke to speak to was a was a very charismatic um, Brazilian diplomat called Sergio Vieira de Mello, who'd been killed in a terrorist attack uh, in on the UN offices in Baghdad in 2003. But I spoke to all the others and they all explained to me how the time they'd been doing the job was the hardest time of all because of all the crises they'd been dealing with. Um, and I really, I I felt for them, but I did ultimately conclude, well, actually the four years which I was doing the job was a really, really tough period because of this growth in need and the need to reform the mm-hmm. the way we respond to that need. No, I, I appreciate that. It's I, I've I've I'm currently with the World Bank, um, which is, you know, it's in the UN system, but it's got a different power structure. So it's an associated organization just for our listeners who Trust me, I don't understand how the World Bank works. I don't fully understand how the UN works. Uh, And I was interning there around 2018. So I've been in and out of the system with Crisis Group as well, which they call the revolving door. Um, I'm sure you've had been in touch with some of the staff from there of your your work. But you you allude to a couple of things that I, I do want to get into, which is one, the work that I'm doing at the moment is... I have passion about all geopolitics and current affairs around the world, but my main area of focus professionally is the climate security nexus, climate and conflict. And, you know, more and more we are seeing this emphasis of climate change as a, well, if if you know it correctly, you understand that climate change is a threat multiplier. It exacerbates the existing instabilities and issues around the world, particularly in the global south and in parts of, say, the most notable sub-Saharan Africa, right? Look at the Somalian matter, as you said, but also the locust infestation of a few years ago, which some people you could argue indirectly caused, led to the intercommunal violence and therefore the build-up of tensions that led to the Ethiopian Tigrayan war that continues to plague the country now. Look at farmer crisis in northern Nigeria or the growing um, desertification of the Sahel uh, and that's causing the Islamic extremism amongst Mali and the instability in Burkina Faso with the coup earlier this year. So it's all interconnected. So I'm just curious from your take on that, but also more particularly, should we not be looking first and foremost at climate change uh, as the overarching issue? And if we can resolve, well, not resolve it, but at least manage that, m- mitigate it, adapt it, whatever it is, we will therefore be able to better address food insecurity as well. Well, my analysis is exactly the same as yours. The um, and I. 
I've got chapters in the book on Yemen, where resource pressures are part of the origin of the crisis. Syria, same thing applies. The Sahel, which you allude to there, I mean, I'm in my analysis is exactly the same as yours. That the combination um, in the Sahel of rapid population growth, extreme poverty, climate change, which means that people's people's traditional livelihoods of either livestock, which depends on rain-fed pasture, or rain-fed crop agriculture, that's becoming decreasingly viable as the climate changes. All of those things are leading to pressure on uh, resources. They're leading to conflict. They're opening up the space for the extremists. And the only way out of this is to do what every other region in the world has has done um, over the last 50, 60 years, which is to develop in a more diversified way. It's still the case the world has more food available per human being now than ever before in human history. But But the economies of these very poor countries are too reliant on unviable livelihoods, especially agriculture. They need to be diversified so that people can have incomes and access food, which can be grown in places where agriculture is still viable. So until we get better as a global community in dealing with the causes of these problems, we shouldn't expect to see things improving. It has been the case across the last 200 years that most countries which have seen rapid growth in their population have also seen at the same time huge diversification and growth in their economy. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't have to be like that. In Ireland in the middle of the 19th century, what we had was a, a very rapidly growing population entirely reliant on the potato crop. Mm-hmm. Potato blight arrived. 90% of the uh, harvest was lost and a million people died in the subsequent famine and a million were forced to flee. So, you know, what Ireland was unable to do at that time was what was being done successfully across the water in Great Britain, which was the economy was diversifying. People were making a living in other ways, industrialization and so on. Agriculture was becoming more productive. Uh, so, and that is the, what we need to get these very vulnerable countries now, which are the, the heart of humanitarian crisis. We need to get them onto the same path. The thing that makes me wonder about that is, you know, in chapter three, you talk about Syria and the myriad of issues that are plaguing the country. Um, now, for me, Syria represents one of the most complicated, if not most, the most complicated conflict in modern history. You know, we had a spider's web of actors in both non-state and state. And, you know, the 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 implications of it on on the whole of the Levant, but the broader Middle East as well, with the proxies involved. Uh, and then you're talking about food insecurity and in, in the ability to provide consistent humanitarian assistance, right? Uh, and that's because of the, it reminds me of the book uh, from a few years ago, uh, Why Nations Fail, uh, and this whole idea of extractive yes. versus inclusive institutions. So, like, how do you go about establishing a framework, an institutional framework, that can help with the facilitation of humanitarianism? Because uh, if you can't get that, then my, my, my ethos has always been, or sort of, if, I'll put it this way, right, which is, uh, when we're, when you're looking at or engaging with the Security Council, sort of, we're talking about the security, the political, and then the humanitarian and human rights di- dimensions, right? But if you don't have the political and the security, in quotation marks, whatever that means specifically, in place, a functioning government or functioning authority of some form, then you can't get this humanitarian aspect to really function either. So 
I don't know if you yeah, think, if, if you see what I mean, but what's your take completely, on that? Completely right. And of course, it's also the case that conflicts have causes. And one of the things going on in Syria, which which led over time to it, you know, being this huge conflagration where 30 countries um, had some of their military personnel on the ground and there were fighters arriving from 100 countries. One of the underlying things that had gone on years before was pressure on water resources and a, a widespread feeling that water wasn't fairly available to everybody. But to to pick up the point you just made, humanitarian agencies only ever need two things to reduce suffering and save lives. The first thing they need is money. And there's a record amount of money being provided at the moment. It is not enough to deal with all the needs, but it is more than has ever been available before. But the second thing they need is access. And what that means is permission or acquiescence or consent from mm-hmm. the men with guns and bombs who control places where civilians in need are, um, they have to accede to the aid agencies doing their work. And that was the biggest problem of all that we faced in Syria, really, over the last 10 years, because armed groups on all sides, particularly the regime of Bashar al-Assad, did their damnedest to prevent the aid agencies reaching lots of people in need if they they happened not to like some of the people who the aid agencies thought were in need of assistance. And the the only way around that, because aid agencies, you know, don't carry guns, they don't have a big stick, the UN has no battalions of its own. The only way around that is negotiation, pleading, calling out breaches in international obligations to allow aid agencies in to help with people. And as you allude to, I spent a lot of my time um, as the head of humanitarian affairs at the UN in the Security Council, more than 100 times, in fact, mornings or afternoons, drawing attention to what was going on in Syria or Yemen. And a lot of the time that was about violations of the law requiring all the competence to allow the aid agencies to get life-saving help to people. And that um, advocacy is an essential part of what we have to do in the modern world if we are to be successful in saving lives. No, I, I, I very much agree uh, with that um, with that premise for sure. So, Mark, um, just on this point, then, what I really like also about the book is the fact how you how you structured it, right? So you've got the part one where you give examples and all around the world from Rohingya, from the Rohingyas to Yemen, to Syria. uh, And then you talk about natural disasters, which is something that I think we sort of don't associate as much with sort of humanitarian issues from a sort of political standpoint. But then I like your part two about sort of more of a thematic approach and uh, and you touch upon women and girls as a whole chapter. Uh, And I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the role of women, because women are disproportionately affected. Um, so, uh, you know, youngsters, women are often the ones that are leading the way in, in helping reform or, or, or respond to the uh, fallout uh, of humanitarian disasters and war zones. So could you take us through a little bit more about what you've seen in terms of improvement and also sort of impact of women giving more access to, to play a role in your time as a as UNGA? Yeah, I mean, firstly, it is a dirty feature, unfortunately, of humanity that men have consistently through human history treated women with atrocious brutality in conflict. There's something very nasty about the combination of biology and psychology, which leads men to 
behave in truly appalling ways in conflict. And we saw, we, you know, wherever, whatever conflict you look at, you see that. I mean, lots of people will have read accounts of um, what happened in Berlin um, at the end of the um, Second World War. But everywhere you look, you see it. And one of the features of the international humanitarian system, the work of the aid agency, so I'm a big fan of and who, who help 100 million people a year and save millions of lives a year, is that they haven't focused enough on that horrible truth. And um, one of the things we tried to do was get more attention paid to that. More women than men need help in crises, but they also need different help, often to be protected from sexual exploitation and abuse and um, mass sexual atrocities, but also other assistance with their reproductive health care. So one of the things we tried to do was to get a stronger focus on the needs of women in these big crises. So I had about $2 billion a year to manage directly and to allocate directly out of the $20 billion or so that's provided voluntarily to deal with these crises, which the UN um, responds to. And one of the things I said for that $2 billion was that no agency seeking money would be able to have money from us unless they could tell us how women and girls were benefiting. And in particular, they were gathering the data on the gender of people needing help. Now, of course, one of the other things we had to deal with is the fact that in this sector, like in so many other sectors, there are cases of sexual harassment and exploitation perpetrated by um, men in charge of organizations. We've seen that in business. We've seen that in media organizations. We've seen that in the church. We've seen that in every organization. And the humanitarian system, unfortunately, is subject to the same risks. And in 2018, while I was the relief chief, there was a big furore over the fact that men working for Oxfam in Haiti 2010 had been committing some of these uh, crimes of sexual abuse and exploitation and hadn't been prevented from subsequently going on to work for other aid agencies in other crises, yeah. the, the worry being that they would do the same thing again. So we tried, we, we used that crisis as an opportunity to do things to clean up the sector, like, for example, providing information on any man who'd done these things to all the agencies so that he wouldn't find it possible to go and get another job by increasing the number of women in leadership positions across the sector, by trying to persuade the donors to allocate a lot more money to programs which would protect women or provide services that women um, needed. And um, I think it's fair to say that we made a, a degree of progress on that. But the truth is, until there's much more progress globally on gender equality and power relations between men and women, these these huge problems are very unlikely to go away. You know, a hundred percent. It's um as you as you say in the book, you know, the stories of what women and girls go through are, are the ones that stick with you more than any others. And some of the things that I, you know, would read into when I was reading some of the UN SITREP reports, particularly in say sub Saharan Africa, DRC, but any of these conflict zones is just harrowing. And it, it pains me to see that women aren't more included in the in the policy making, decision making process. Just to just to build on that then. So in in the in the context of of the UN as well, we, you know, we see a, a need for more women positions, I think. Um, but broadly as well, there's the general, I think, lack of belief in the UN and maybe the, the deal today uh, established with the help of the United Nations, Antonio, is, uh, is, a, is a marked evidence that the UN is a necessary entity. 
uh, and one that shouldn't be removed because, you know, people say the UN is useless, it's inefficient, it's outdated, needs to be uh, eradicated or whatever, dissolved. What's your personal opinion? I mean, obviously, I think that's utter nonsense. But what do you think the UN could do? You talk about a humanitarian system more broadly in the uh, final chapter. But what about uh, the role of the UN specifically? Well, the biggest humanitarian agencies around the world, like the World Food Programme, UNICEF, the UN Refugee Agency, they're all UN bodies and they do a lot of good. And often, actually, when people are complaining about the UN, what in fact they're complaining about is the behaviour of member states in their discussions in the UN. So people complain about the Security Council and really what they're complaining is about is arguments between, say, Russia and China on the one hand and the US, France and Germany on the other hand. But the institutions, the organisations of the UN also have a huge responsibility to get more efficient, to be less bureaucratic, to be more focused on delivering real results for um, the people they're supposed to be helping. And Antonio Guterres took up his role as Secretary General with a um, a big agenda to do that. And one of the reasons I agreed to go and work for him, actually, was because I thought that was important. I could see a bunch of things we could do. And we, we have made a degree of progress on that. But this is the work of years and probably decades, not something you get instant transformation on. And we just have to keep going with reform. We need to make sure every pound or dollar or euro that anyone gives the UN works as hard as it can in changing the life of somebody caught up in one of these crises. And that's a long, hard bureaucratic grind, which requires real determination and um, management focus. Uh, But there's no way around that, you know, doing that kind of work. We have to do it. I, I I appreciate that, and the thing I remember one specific segment, um, which was your your suggestion of financing the UN's Central Emergency Response Fund through the kind of like assessed contributions that member states make for like peacekeeping and their regular contributions to the budget, uh, rather than sort of just voluntary contributions. Which I think is a good point. Why is it for the security dimension that there is a different formality or for a process versus the um, the humanitarian, so to speak. I was just wondering if you could unpack that a little bit more. Yeah, so if you're a country, and there are 196 of them, almost all of the countries in the world, which is a member of the UN, you have to pay towards the cost of running the UN, and you have to pay towards the cost of the UN's peacekeeping operations. What you don't have to do is make any contribution at all to the UN's humanitarian work. All of that is funded voluntarily. So one of my proposals, in order to achieve two things, firstly, to get the burden shared more fairly, and also to have some money available in the bank so that when there's a new crisis, you could have an immediate response without having to pass around the hat with all the delays that would involve. One of my proposals was that there should be a requirement for every country which is a member of the UN, to contribute as part of their support for the UN to this Central Emergency Response Fund. It was basically set up in its current format after the tsunami in 2004, Boxing Day 2004, 26 December, lots of people will remember it, and took hundreds of thousands of lives in um, East Asia. And um, I remember, because I worked on it uh, from that very day, I remember what a huge challenge it was to get the relief operation going Uh, fast enough because the first thing any of the response agencies had to do was pass the hat round to get some money um, in order that they could acquire the commodities to help people or hire the staff who could go out and help. And if instead of 
taking weeks or sometimes months to gather the necessary money, you have money in the bank already, you'd get a much faster response, which would be cheaper and save more lives. So so that is one specific thing that it would be easy to achieve and which I hope a group of countries will start to push because it's quite difficult for any one country to explain why they're against that. And if, if there's enough who start to articulate it, I think it will happen. Interesting. Okay. No, I, I appreciate you uh, unpacking that a little bit more. It, it's one of those things, <laughs> intricate detailings and workings of the urine is not something uh, any of us, I think, have a full grasp on, let alone uh, people who just uh, focused it from a, a broader perspective. And that does make me just question again then a little bit, you know, we're in a world which is increasingly, you could say, bipolar based on sort of autocratic versus democratic values. And as we see, you know, a growing anti or non-liberal democracy sort of axis grow, if you like to put it like that, Russia, China, Iran, Turkey, to a certain extent, Venezuela, these countries sort of banding together. What do you think that means for the support to the UN? A, a little two subpart question here for you. To the UN? but also just humanitarian assistance more broadly, because, you know, we've got lots of non-profits, lots of NGOs trying to do their work, trying to support the system, but you've got countries that are wanting to obstruct and undermine those processes. Uh, look at Syria, look yeah. at Ukraine. Even. Like, what's what's your opinion about humanitarianism in the next few years, given the current sort of world order we're in, or seeing change, if that's a not too big a question? <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, clearly, the geopolitical context is one that is making collaboration between the leading countries in tackling shared problems more challenging. There are a small group of, you know, very obstreperous, almost pariah states of the sort that you have run through on your list there. There's there's a bigger group, though, of countries who are sort of on the fence and are trying to work out the answer to your question as well, who want the world to be peaceful and stable and want to see collaboration, but have reservations about some of the things the um, some Western countries have done over recent decades and are also trying to work out um, how best to position themselves in what is increasingly emerging to be this um, geopolitical set of tensions between China on the one hand and the US and the rest of the West on, on the other hand. And navigating all of that is going to be one of the big challenges as the 21st century plays out. And um, for me, the bottom line is there's a set of global challenges that all countries face, climate change, the need for um, collaboration on trade and economics, the fact that if there's a pandemic, we're all affected by it, mm -hmm. um, the fact that refugees can find their way anyway, the fact that organized criminals can operate um, from a haven and affect everybody. There's a set of common challenges which can affect everybody and everyone's logical interests are best served by collaborating to deal with those challenges and getting the powerful countries to be able to look over the parapet of their disagreements with each other to recognize that their interests ultimately are going to be best served by collaborating on some set of issues, including dealing better with humanitarian crises. That's what we have to do. And if we didn't have the UN to do that, we'd have to invent it because no um, one country on its own anymore can deal with these big challenges. It has to be done through cooperation. You need a forum for such cooperation. And that's what the UN provides.
No, I, I 100% agree. I mean, it's sort of people I, I find treat geopolitics or international relations as very black and white when it's anything but. Um, we call it the grey zone when it comes to conflict, right? And um, I, I think that the UN broadly is something that if we didn't have the UN, well, we'd have something else. Um, and, you know, we've got countries trying to develop their own alternatives, but the UN as it stands has done quite a lot of notable things the un charter of the sea the declaration of human rights anything like these are examples of well cop 26 even you know the notable achievement of getting 193 96 nations to sit down and agree on some well it's non-binding still a commitment to some kind of climate change targets what is interesting is you're starting to see more countries veer off and do sort of mini lateral commitments you know three to five to sort of eight or ten countries being much more targeted in, in something uh and so it just makes me wonder about where the un un is going to fill in those gaps if countries are feeling disenfranchised um out of sorts so to speak with the un um well, do you think it's going to be a bit of a husk or you or, or am i being too pessimistic no i think that the big issues will require global engagement with them and if there are other fora where that can be promoted like for example the um, group of 20 countries which account for 80% of global GDP who meet periodically. Um, if those four can work, then great. In fact, at the moment, those four are working less well than UN four. What we've seen in places like the G20 is countries are refusing to sit down with each other, and that's not what's happening in the UN. So I think the UN is still in pole position for the big challenges. It's a universal organization, but every country essentially is a member. They all have some things they want to contribute to. They all have some things they want, and that keeps them keeps them there, as it were. I, I think if there are some sorts of challenges that can be dealt with in a narrower format, 20, 30 years ago, we'd have said getting rid of CFCs as a greenhouse gas was one mm -hmm. of them. And in fact, it was a limited number of countries who signed the Montreal Protocol and essentially solved that problem. So for some sorts of problem, you know, you can do it with a smaller group. But increasingly in the way the modern world is playing out, we it's a multipolar world. There are many countries with a significant stake, um, all of whom for the really big issues like climate change, need to be engaged in in a collective endeavour. And really, there's no alternative to the UN for that. If we didn't have it, we'd have to invent it. Let's use what we've got rather than go to all the expense and time wasting to try and start again. And that leads me into the, the end of your book, uh, where you're talking about some of the critiques that come up to the points that you mention, right? Uh, one of them comes from the right wing. And, you know, we are seeing a uh, a slight embeddedness of, of pretty strong right wing uh, beliefs, be it in the UK and the, in the current British government or in the US. We're seeing, a, you know, a strong presence of the right wing, not saying that the far left is sort of uh, scot free of any troubles. But, you know, it's the right wing that, that uh, as you lie out, um, sorry, outline claim that, it, that aid agencies should not be supported because they don't actually help anyone. Um, which is obviously nonsense. But why Why is it that the, the right, do you think, have this uh, scepticism over sort of, I don't know, humanitarianism, multilateralism, um, and this, this inability or undesire to sort of want to support it, or internationalism more broadly? Well, it's hard to understand, isn't it? And it's not everyone across the right wing. I mean, the little-known fact the Trump administration spent more on humanitarian assistance 
uh, when it was in office than its predecessor had. Now, that was because of decisions taken in the Congress largely. Mm. But there is a powerful, committed um, set of views and um, caucus, if you like, in the Republican Party about the importance of dealing with global hunger. And that's one of the reasons why, in fact, the uh, Congress um, was able to announce a really big package of additional support, $5 billion um, in May, which aided by this deal that we talked about at the beginning of the uh, discussion on freeing up Ukraine's grain. That's one of the major reasons why why we might still be able to avoid mass mass famine. But I, I, I think this is more complicated than a left-right split, actually. I think um, one of the things we've seen um, in the outpouring of support from ordinary people all around the world wanting to do something to help Ukrainians who've been forced to flee their country. What we've seen is a confirmation of the universal spirit of empathy and understanding suffering elsewhere and wanting something to be done about it. People know it's hard to get through to the people really in need in these difficult, uh, in these crises, but they still want their representatives, their governments, their agencies to do it. And they know it won't all work perfectly, but they still think it's important to try and do the best you can. And that that is the overwhelming kind of mentality, I think, among um, among people everywhere. It's a generous species, ultimately, as well as one that in bad moments exhibits some atrocious um, behaviours. Absolutely. No, I, I, I 100% agree. And, and I guess that leads me to as we as we begin to wind down this episode of the global gambit. Um, Mark, you know, looking ahead now, we've had this positive development with the Ukrainians and the Russians, albeit they're signing separate peace deals uh, or deals uh, and and agreements because they, well, you know, it, it uh, the deep rooted um, uh, tension and um, well hatred, I think, from both sides at this point, um, unsurprisingly. But, you know, longer term, this this isn't going to happen overnight. We've got a trickle-down effect. We've got a lot of uh, obstacles. As you say, we're in this flux of a multipolar world, which is seemingly going more bipolar over time. Where do we go from here? What what is the the next sort of, you know, six to one year outlook, do you think, for food insecurity? Um, Again, at the end of of your book, you mentioned that some of the sort of complacency that came from within the humanitarian system itself was something that troubled you uh, even more than the sort of right wing part you know is there a degree of complacency or, or are we really faced are we up against the wall so to speak or what, what's your just you what's your could you take us through a bit of your forecasting well firstly i think that um complacency is a huge danger to humanitarian agencies because you're doing work that is intrinsically good and matters you should never believe you can't you can't do better you should always be trying to improve. You should always be wake, working to get every pound um, working harder for the people who um, for whom there isn't enough money. My my sort of take, if you like, on prospects for dealing with what is currently the worst global food crisis we've seen for decades, and which could turn into multiple famines, is you know the prospects are in the balance. We're not out of the woods, even if this deal just signed is fully implemented, because the pre-existing problems caused by conflict and climate change and COVID meant that even before Putin's invasion, um, we were looking at a 30% increase over the last six or seven years in the people facing acute starvation to a very high level, to 830 million 
people. So more than 10 percent of the population of the planet. That's a big increase from what it was seven years ago um, facing this severe problem. And we need to do the two things we talked about. Firstly, address the causes, but secondly, mm-hmm. improve the uh, humanitarian response system. And um, it's going to be a challenging, demanding period for everybody who works on these issues because we're not doing well enough. Um, at the moment. And there's a lot at stake for tens of millions of people, most of them women and children. I know I said that that was going to be, you know, the final, but that's made me think of one more thing. And uh, just dismiss it as much as if you want. But one of the things I think the UN struggles with and the NGO sector and humanitarianism, sort of if you want to talk about it as, a, as an industry, is the inability to make it accessible to average individuals. So people, you know, talk about the UN and we touched upon that in this conversation today about, you know, being out of touch. But how do we make the UN more accessible? How do we make it more engaging? How do we make the UN more modern uh, and, and therefore hopefully improve the humanitarian work and system uh, that it that it is supposedly overarchingly you know influencing because if, if people don't understand the value of the UN or the value of the work that, that it and others like it are doing then surely that's a that's a problem in itself how do we educate people not in a sort of patronizing sense but how do we you know just bring this to be more uh, of an accessible uh, industry or area if that makes sense yeah, no, completely. Well, we need to tell more often and more effectively the stories of all the good things that are done to feed children and get them into school and um, immunise them against killer diseases all around the world and how that's contributed to dramatic improvements. And a lot of the work that's been done there has been by the Red Cross or Oxfam and other NGOs or by the UN. If we communicate more of the good stuff that's done um, and how it is possible to make a difference that and and spend less just talking about, you know, the meetings we've been in and mm-hmm. um, what all the challenges are. Communicating more of the successes um, will sustain support and people's belief that you can do something um, about this. And it's worth trying because, you know, one of the things you learn if you're the relief chief for several years, as I was, is that the people caught up in these crises are exactly the same as the rest of us. They have exactly the same human anxieties, hopes, fears, desires for their uh, children, things they want for the future. The only difference between them and the rest of us is that life's lottery has been kind to us and cruel to them. And out of our common humanity, the more you understand that, and and are able to communicate it, the easier it is to get people on board with the idea that um, because these problems are solvable, we should make a bit more effort to solve them. 100%. 100%. Well, thank you very much, Mark. I, I really appreciate it. Um, this has been, you know, as I say, when we first started uh, being in touch and, and figuring out when you would be able to join us uh, on the Global Gambit, um, I was blown away. You know, I really enjoyed your conversation on Martin Goldberg's uh, podcast, which I recommend other people to listen to as well. But also reading your book and everybody, you can find the book. Uh, it will be in the show notes of this podcast episode, but also on the replay of this uh, of this room as well um, on Clubhouse. So, Mark, before we end, uh, are there any final thoughts you'd like to share? Anything people can engage with you aside from your book on uh, Twitter, on on online? If you've got a website, that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Love to talk to people there. It's been a great conversation. We can make a difference. So thanks, everybody, for joining us. And um you know, look forward to seeing comments on the podcast and everybody's comments in the, the chat and on the social media.
Thank you very much, Mark. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, and to both my listeners in real time here on Clubhouse, but also on the podcast, uh, thank you very much. You make this all possible, particularly uh, people on Patreon like um, like Wookley uh, and others as well. So I appreciate everybody for joining us. Uh, and I look forward to seeing you in another episode of The Global Gambit. Take care. You were listening to The Global Gambit. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, subscribe and leave us a review. We would especially appreciate it if you left a comment on why you valued this episode and what you took away from it. Doing so helps us to be discovered by new listeners who would really enjoy our content. Want to support us further? Do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit where you can get additional perks and even be featured in upcoming episodes. We actively invite you to follow and engage with us on social media at The Global Gambit. Got any feedback or suggestions, such as potential guests? Get in touch at theglobalgambit at gmail.com. Lastly, don't be shy. Download the Clubhouse app, listen in in real time, and even participate with questions or comments to the guests and host Piotr. But until next time... This is The Global Gambit.